Father, I thank you that you have given us the opportunity to teach children the truth. That they could be raised understanding what you have done through your son. And I thank you, Father God, that as a church, we can take these young people and bring them into a place of relationship with Christ, that they will know what the Word of God is, what it means, and they can live accordingly. Be with those that instruct them this morning, that they would have the words of wisdom, be with the helpers, and be with each child. Bring them, Father God, into a, a closer relationship with your Son. And I ask, Father God, that as the service goes on, that the words that will be spoken will be of you. I ask, Father God, that you would transform us, that we would become more like your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name, amen. God is very good to us. We've been going through the book of Hebrews and as I was studying again this week, it, it, was, it was very obvious that even though Zach and I have been trying to go verse by verse and, and spending a great deal of time in this book, we're barely scratching the surface. We're going to return to our study today. We're in chapter 12. And in this chapter, we're going to continue with the metaphor of running a race. Let's begin in verse 12. Therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. And I understand this, this metaphor, this imagery in a little bit different way. I did run some in track. Um, I was crazy. I remember the first time they, they recognized that I, I was kind of fast they put me in um, the 200, and they didn't have any track shoes for my little feet. I said, here, you could use these. And they were like size 13s or something, and I, I, you know, I'm a six and a half. And I said, no, nah, that isn't going to work. So I ran it in my stocking feet. It was a cinder track. There was a reason why I ran fast. I liked it. After a while, though, I got to the point where I didn't like track that much. Um, what's the point? You know, if you're just going to run around in circles? My understanding of this kind of metaphor that is used and the imagery that's presented in these first two verses, my mind goes to, to where one of my passions has been in my life, and that is backpacking and hiking, mountain climbing. And I began ministry with a, ministry, a youth ministry designed specifically for high schoolers, but we, we did some with middle schoolers. And I would take those students into wilderness areas in Colorado. And as we would be hiking through uh, the different wilderness areas throughout the day, I would, I would purposely as a leader be watching because I wanted to observe and protect those students. And there were, were, there were times where, I'd go, okay, it's time to stop, you know, because I'd, I'd see 
I'd see people walking, you know, and I knew they weren't drinking, but they're, they're wobbling. Many times I had students who had never been to the mountains, let alone hiking, and let alone carrying a backpack. So there was, there was times I'm, I'm looking for certain things. In this passage, the exhortation is, is about hands that are weak and knees that are feeble. And for me, I remember not so much the hands hanging, but you'd see the backpackers leaning forward differently and the feet start finding rocks and roots more often and there's more stumbling. They would shuffle more. And sometimes, even though the trail wanders a little bit, you'd even come to a straight place, though, and people would be all the way to the right side of the trail, and then they would wander all the way over to the left side of the trail, and you're going, these people are getting fatigued. It's time to stop, or, or you know, we need to get a drink of water. What's going on? The imagery is very important for us. Because the idea that's being presented is one of endurance. And whether it's running or hiking, if you focus your thinking on the weak knees, the stumbling gets worse. I've been there. Yeah. The longest trip I took went from just west of Longmont to Granby Reservoir. And some of you know Colorado. That worked out to be technically about 90-some, 96 miles or something like that because of a mistake made by who was leading. We won't mention my name. It was well over 100 miles. I was carrying a backpack on that trip. Um, I started with a pack that weighed about 90 pounds. I barely weighed 120 at the time. Actually, I weighed about 115. I understand the weak knee part. I understand getting to the point where you're going, okay, left knee, bend, move the foot forward. And you're focusing on just getting the body to work. The more I focused on that, the more I found roots and rocks and terrain problems, everything became more difficult. When we focus on those things, it's more difficult to keep our minds on the goal. If we keep our mind on the goal, if, we, if we're thinking in terms of, of the future that we have, if we're thinking, you know, backpacking, you're going to get to that beautiful lake where we're going to camp tonight. If you're running the race, it's, it's crossing the finish line, hopefully first. If it's mountain climbing, you know, it's getting to the top. The goal, if you keep focused on the goal, the endurance becomes easier. That's the point. That's what we're to encourage. Strengthen those hands. Strengthen. We're to do that. This imagery also is something that the author of Hebrews drew upon from the book of Isaiah. It's very similar to Isaiah 35, 3 and 4. And when Isaiah was writing that passage, Israel's history was, was a mess. They were marred by evil kings, false prophets, disobedient, stubborn people, and discouraged. They, they had many times when they just basically had limp 
hands, weak knees, and we're stumbling. The prophet Isaiah exhorts the people to encourage one another, and he says this, Isaiah 35, verse 3, Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, Take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but He will save you. That's tremendous. He will save you. The exhortation is then for us as the body of Christ to encourage. What does Isaiah say? Encourage the exhausted. Back in Hebrews chapter 12, we're not told to strengthen our hands. Look at it closely. It it doesn't say strengthen your own hands or your feeble knees. He says the hands, the knees. We are to strengthen others. Do we need to be strengthened? Yeah. But we need to be about the business of strengthening one another. If you want to to be encouraged. If you're at a point in your life and you're going, man, I I want some encouragement. I'm feeling really down and, and things just aren't going well. If you need some encouragement, one of the best ways to be encouraged is to go encourage somebody. It really is. Get your eyes off your difficulties and put them on God and let Him use you. Take courage, fear not, Isaiah says. Why can we do that? Because God is who He says He is. And that was the point of all those heroes of the faith that we've looked at in chapter 11. That list of heroes, they had numerous difficulties. Those lives that are presented there in Scripture were not easy lives. They encountered lots of rough stuff. But they kept moving forward. They kept looking towards the prize. They kept looking towards the goal of something greater that God had. There's also, as we go on in, in, in Hebrews, there's an interesting word picture that is used in verse 13. The phrase in the English is, make straight paths. And this gives us the idea of conduct. And, and that, that straight paths part came from a word that meant the tracks left by a, a carriage or a, a chariot. And the idea is one of conduct. As we're running the race, as we're going through whatever life brings, and we are encouraging others, the idea is that we don't want to interfere with somebody else. We want to encourage them and, and build them up. In track, in, in some of the races, if, if you're running the race and you get out of your lane, you're disqualified. It doesn't matter whether you run into somebody or not. You, you're just disqualified because you, you stepped over that little white line. And the whole idea is to not interfere with another runner. When, when I was doing the backpacking, you, you, you rarely had a trail where you could walk side by side. And very often, tired legs would get involved and there would be a bunching up. And it was, it was you're interfering with one another. And it became dangerous. You wouldn't want to walk side by side in most of the trails in a lot of the wilderness areas. Because if somebody stumbles a little and bumps, you could go off, and it could be a long way down. Happened to me once, about 50 feet, boom, 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 
boom, boom, boom, boom. And, and why did I go over? One of the guys bumped me. That's all it was. It wasn't malicious. Walking around him to try to get to somebody else who's having trouble, and he just shifted his weight, and off I went. Head over heels. This exhortation, then, is for each one of us to care about those that we're running with. The exhortation is, is also make straight paths. It's to look ahead, to pay attention to the race, looking forward to the finish. If we're not looking forward, we're looking backwards. And the last time I checked, every time I kept looking backwards when I'm walking or hiking, I stumble because I'm not paying attention of what's in front. This is the wisdom of Solomon in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 25 through 27. It says, let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. The whole idea is, is keeping focused on what? The goal, the prize, what's ahead. If we get distracted or wander, we'll stumble. And very likely, if we stumble, we're going to take somebody with us and cause them to stumble. In Hebrews 12, 13, the word lame, it, it, it's, it's from a Greek word that means lame. I like it when it's that easy to translate. It also can be translated or used as hesitate. And that it's, that's a very important part as well. The Old Testament was translated into Greek. We call that the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, this same word is used in 1 Kings 18.21. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Israel has come to a place where they've chosen to, to worship Baal. And God sends the prophet Elijah. And what's he sent to do? He's, he's sent to oppose the prophets of Baal and to bring God's people back to himself. His task was to bring about a, a, a change in direction. And in doing that, it led to that fantastic contest on Mount Carmel between 400 prophets of Baal and Elijah. 400 to 1. What a neat opportunity to see God. And in that context, uh, contest, he says this. I, I really encourage you to read that thing through on a regular basis because it is so amazing what God does. Remember, it's 400 to 1. 1 Kings 18.21, Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate? That's the same word that we see in Hebrews as lame. How long will you be lame? How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, follow Him. But the people didn't answer Him a word which speaks to where they were at. They were lame. They were hesitating. They, they're going, well, I don't know. 
They weren't focused on the truth. In Hebrews 13, the point is for believers to support one another and build one another up so fellow believers won't stumble and fall or turn away from God. Verse 14. Pursue peace. Here's another exhortation. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Now, this has been a difficult verse in the history of the church, and some people still struggle with it because the verse appears to say that if we, per, if we pursue peace and sanctification, we will see the Lord. And, and what that really sounds like is if we do those two things, then we will be saved. That would be a system of works for salvation. And that doesn't jive with the rest of Scripture because we're only saved by grace. And actually, that's not what the verse is saying anyway. Believers are at peace with God because of Christ. So if you're a believer, you understand that your relationship with God is one of peace. You actually have a certain kind of peace with God. Because of Christ. Believers are also sanctified. That means they are made righteous by the blood of Christ. This means that, this verse then means our, our lifestyle should match what God has already done in us. That phrase, without which no one will see the Lord, it's referring to unbelievers. The unbelievers that we encounter in life, they see how we live and are either drawn to the life we have in Christ or they reject Christ because we don't practice what we preach. Wherever you're at, no matter what you're doing, no matter what the situation is in your life, you represent Christ. What do they see? Do they see a hypocrite or do they see a believer who loves Jesus and is consumed by Him. When we pursue peace and holiness, unbelievers see Jesus. John thirteen thirty five. Jesus says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. One of the greatest things that the church can do to attract unbelievers is to love one another. Let's go on. Verse 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. See to it is from uh, the Greek episkopio, and that's similar to another word, episkopos, where we get Elder. It's, okay, so an elder is an overseer. The, the word group has all to do with these, this idea of oversight, overseeing something. Well, not every one of us is an elder. What's the point? What, what the author and what the Spirit of God wants us to grasp is that every believer... Every believer that has been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ is to look after, to have that kind of oversight, of other brothers and sisters, encouraging and helping each other to be more like Christ. Not to be judgmental. 
That's not what this means. Oversight doesn't mean to be, be judgmental. I'm going to pick on Jim. I love Jim. But you know, you've got red, white, and blue suspenders with a gray shirt. Who let you in today? Well, that would be really, that would be really judgmental. Instead, I am so glad you're wearing your suspenders. And I love it when you're here, brother. What a great man. Every believer is to have a level of oversight with other believers. It matters. You need to be concerned, sensitive, and compassionate while helping believers through their difficult trials and persecutions. Paul makes it this, this idea extremely clear in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 where he, he uses the idea of the human body and the interdependence that that suggests and implies. Our bodies have all these different components that interact. They're doing that right now. You're all doing really well. You're breathing in and breathing out, and your heart is beating. Those have to go together, or you kind of have a problem. Your right arm is attached. Your left arm is attached. They work together. They have to be connected. It's the body of Christ. So in that imagery, we need to be caring about one another. We very often see that represented in Scripture as loving one another. This quality of believers, the body of Christ loving one another, is seen by the world. Don't think it isn't. It is. Those who are outside of Christ watch the church all the time. You are the church. Everywhere you go, you represent the kingdom of God. And in that verse, verse 15, it says, See to it, look out, be overseeing, that no one comes short. And that term uh, there, comes short, it means to be late or left out. And this is incredibly important in what we're finding in this passage. If a person dies without believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, they will be lost for eternity. Does that matter to you? I'm not sure I like that. Does it matter to you that there are people around you, if they die without Christ, they go to hell? Does that matter to you? Yes. Come on, church. You're the church of the living God. We are in a society that is full of people who don't know Jesus. If they die in that condition, they spend all of eternity in hell. Does that matter? It should matter more than anything that goes on in our life. It should. Every believer, every believer is to constantly be on the lookout for people who need Jesus. You know how easy that is? Do any of you ever go to the grocery store? 
Raise your hand if you go to the grocery store. See there? You're going to see people at the grocery store who need Jesus. I can guarantee it. You're going to run into them. And if you go to a, a, a place and, and buy petroleum distillate, how many of you know what petroleum distillate is? Okay. Where's Dick Wortham? Do you know what petroleum distillate is? I wouldn't want to drink. Yeah, okay. When you do that, you will see people who need Jesus. We need to realize body of Christ, church of the living God, the body of Christ. We're all connected together, and in that connectedness, we need to realize that God left us here for a purpose. And a great part of that purpose, not the only part, but a great part of that purpose is to be His hands and feet, to reflect His love and to be used by Him to draw others into a relationship with Him. And one of the principal ways that we draw them is by loving those who are in the body of Christ. Every believer, every believer needs to ask, and ask this question honestly, if they really do care passionately for the lost. Does it matter? It matters. We go on in Hebrews chapter 12. Another exhortation. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. A horrible story. And very instructive Esau and Judas are two of the saddest, twisted, ungodly people in Scripture. There are a lot of evil people that are pictured in Scripture. There are a lot of really mean, nasty, evil people. But Esau and Judas are at the top. They are so twisted. And here's why. Their ungodliness is kind of the epitome of ungodliness because they had the greatest opportunity right there. In one way, you could say they had it all. Esau could have received the blessing of God through his father. Isaac was ready to give him the blessing. Instead, Esau satisfied his physical flesh And sold it. What wickedness is that? Judas. Same idea. Judas was included with the twelve disciples. Three years of being with Jesus. Watching the miracles. He was included in all of that ministry. Countless miracles. He was there when Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. He was there when the 5,000 were fed. He was there when he encountered all of those, those miracles that are recorded in Scripture and many that aren't. 
He was included in that group of 12 when they were sent out to do ministry. He had it all. And he sold it for 30 pieces of silver to satisfy his greed. Both of those men knew in an intellectual way God's truth. They knew God's God's word. How could Judas not know God's word? He lived with the word. First-hand knowledge. Esau, he he was there. His daddy was ready to give him the blessing. His dad thought he was giving him the blessing. But what puts these two apart is that they both willfully rejected God. They willfully said, I think there's a better way. And how did that work out for them? This exhortation in Hebrews then is that we are to watch so no one turns from the truth, so that no one becomes bitter and rejects God. Life is difficult. I almost said life sucks, but I knew that wouldn't be proper on Sunday morning for for me to say that. It's easy to become bitter when life doesn't work the way we think it should. And that bitterness brings us to a place where we reject God. It's possible for people to reject the truth. And I believe that believers have an opportunity to reject God. I think that believers remain saved. They backslide. They stumble. They have difficulties. But we're in a society where we're surrounded by people who are really in need of Jesus. And maybe they start following after some things. There may even be people here this morning and and you've been in church off and on or maybe most of your life, but you've never really connected all the way with Christ. And then stuff in life happens. You get a little bitter and you go, God doesn't work. And they walk away. And the exhortation is we need to be watching for that. We need to be watching one another to help make sure that we don't backslide. We need to be pressing forward. To make his point, the author goes on, verse 18. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. In that passage, may be touched doesn't mean giving permission to touch. What is meant in the context in Hebrews and in uh, um, Exodus, I'll get it. It means able to be touched. When God was establishing the law with Moses, the people were forbidden to touch the mountain. 
The mountain symbolizes the old covenant. It's earthly. The old covenant had a different purpose. It was to be the tutor, the teacher of the fundamental principles of God and His holiness. The old, the old covenant, the law, teaches all men that all men cannot measure up to God's perfection. That was its purpose. It was a covenant of judgment and fear. Don't do this or you will be judged. Do this or you will die. Those were, those were statements about God's covenant. Where does that take us? The old covenant was impossible to keep. No one could keep it. That's important. Because without that understanding, we don't understand how desperately we're in need of Christ. And that becomes the contrast that you see in this passage. Contrast between Mount Sinai, the old covenant, with Mount Zion and the new covenant. Hebrews 12, 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Mount Zion it's it's actually the opposite of Mount Sinai. They're opposites. Zion is touchable. We're encouraged to, to go throw ourselves on that mountain, touch it, hug it, go there. Anyone can approach Mount Zion through Jesus. Mount Zion represents symbolizes grace. Mount Sinai represents law. The law challenges us with commandments, judgment, and condemnation. The new covenant, Mount Zion, in Christ, that presents us with the ideas of forgiveness and atonement, and salvation, and access to God. In this passage, that comparison between Sinai and Zion, the old covenant and the new covenant, we find something deeper. It's God's judgment. His judgment is all through this passage. Because the reality is that every human being, every person will be judged. You will either be judged by the law or judged by grace. Every human being of all time will be judged by their own works or by the works of Christ. The reality is that we should never forget and keep in mind as part of our looking forward as believers is that there are two books in heaven. I don't know how he does it, and I don't know how 
it all works out. But we're told that there are these two books being kept in heaven. Things are being recorded in those books. One contains the names of those who have rejected God. The other contains the names of those who love God and have accepted His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That book is sometimes called the Book of Life. And those whose names are in the Book of Life will be judged by what Christ has done. That's marvelous! Isn't it? Because if it depends on whether I'm good or not, I fail. I cannot measure up to God's standard. I can't get there on my own. And God says, by grace, you don't have to because my son did it for you. Are you judged? You are. And when you're judged, God, the Father, the judge says, yeah, what about? And our advocate, Jesus, says, they're one of mine. And the Father says, great, welcome to the family. You're mine. Those who do not trust Jesus will also be judged. They will be judged by their own efforts, their own attempts at being righteous, which according to Isaiah 64.6 are no more than filthy garments. It's of no use, no value. If you're here today and you haven't made a commitment to Christ and and you think that by your own strength or your own works or your own actions, you can have access to God because you're such a good person, you're going to hell because there is nothing you can do great enough, good enough, or consistently enough for God to forgive you and accept you. It's impossible to do that. You're judged. If you're here today and you've not made a commitment to Christ, Make a commitment to Christ so that your righteousness doesn't matter. Christ's righteousness matters. This passage in Hebrews speaks of the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. This is is speaking about heaven itself, the place where God resides. When we come to Christ, we come by grace. And when we do that, we begin looking forward to the same prize, the same city that Abraham looked for, the same city, the same goal, the same prize as all those heroes of the faith in chapter 11 were looking for. They're looking for exactly the same thing. That heavenly city, that place where God resides, where we can be with Him perfectly. Heaven is the spiritual home of every believer. That means that heaven is where our treasure is. It's our hope. And everything that we value and desire needs to be wrapped around that goal and that purpose. Believers have come to Zion through Jesus, the mediator. Mediator, that's the go-between. He's he's the go-between. He's the peacemaker, if you will. 
He's the cause of the new covenant's effectiveness. It works because he perfectly died for you and I. It's perfect. It cannot be flawed. It will not fail. If you put your trust in Jesus, you get the prize. There's no question about it. This is also then why in this passage, the author writes about his blood being better than the blood of Abel. If you remember the story about Cain and Abel, the two two sacrifices were brought and God accepted one and and didn't accept the other. Abel's was accepted because it was offered by faith. But there's a problem. That offering, even though God accepted it, could not atone for sins. None of the Old Testament sacrifices could do that. Animal sacrifices were only a picture of something to come. They could not fully atone for sins. Only one sacrifice can do that, and that is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus is sufficient to cleanse the sins of anyone who will place their faith in him. Abel's a hero of the faith because even though he didn't sit down with his family and go, I praise Jesus for saving me, his hope and his future perspective was in the same thing. A savior provided by God. Through the blood of Christ, then all believers are at peace with God. Wow. Peace with God. Mull that over. Live there. I like what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, 19 and 20. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, everything that has to do with peace with God for us, was made available by Jesus. Wow. This takes me back to what Isaiah said in encouraging us. Fear not. Take courage. Take courage, brothers and sisters. Church of the living God, people of the word, take courage. Fear not. Behold, your God will come. He will save you. Your future is absolutely secure in Christ. So where does this take us? And I believe a good portion of what this passage is about is that just knowing the new covenant is better is not enough. Knowing Christ is superior and our perfect high priest is not where it should end. Those two things are are great. 
You know the covenant. You know Jesus. That's great. In a way, we could say, so what? And I might add, prove it. Prove it. The exhortation is what we know and believe should appear. It should show up. And it should show up. It should appear in how we live our lives. It's, it's not that our, our obedience in life is going to get us saved. If we're believers, we're already saved. We're saved by grace. And because we're saved by grace, it should show up in how we live. I got this last idea from John MacArthur, but I really like it. The greatest fool is the person who understands the truth of the gospel but doesn't apply the gospel to everyday life. Those two men represent the greatest fools. They had everything. I think of Judas in particular. He's first-hand seen the Savior of the world, seeing the power of God firsthand, and he rejected God's truth. What showed up in his life? What shows up in yours? What we know to be truth, who God has made us because of Christ, needs to show up in how we relate to the world around us, and to each other. That's who we are. That should be what people see. Father, thank you that you have the ability by your Spirit, Holy Spirit, you are the one who can stir us up inside and direct our thinking, direct our paths. Father, fill us to overflowing with a passion for the lost. Fill us to overflowing with a passion for other brothers and sisters that we could be used by you to build them up that your body would be healthy and powerful. And Father, wherever we go, let us see the wonderful, miraculous truth that is still real. You love the world enough that you sent your son to die, providing a means to take care of sin once and for all. Use us, Father God, to rescue the lost. Use us, Father God, to not just stop with rescuing them, but use us to transform them into men and women who are passionate about the word, passionate about the lost, passionate about glorifying you. And let us not stop there. But use us in the body of Christ to help one another mature as believers that we would be like Jesus in this life. Holy Spirit, show us the opportunities 
that we have every day to represent the kingdom of God, to be the hands and feet of the one who hung on the cross for us. Thank you, Father. Be glorified in who we are as your church.